You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I'm excited to have on today Dr. Hendrik Nolans. Hey, Hendrik, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Chris? Doing awesome. Doing awesome. And Hendrik's actually close to back home for me here in Mission Viejo, California. He is the Vice President of Conservation Medicine and Science at the Pacific Mammal Center. So that's a big job, huh? <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's actually Pacific Marine Mammal Center, Chris. But I'll I'll uh, I'll let you get it, get away with that one. But yeah, you know, Pacific <laughs> is a big place, and and marine mammals. There's a lot of them out here. So yeah, it's a big job, no no doubt. That yeah, is marine mammals. Sorry, that's my bad. But um, now thanks for thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you're obviously very busy. I'm a huge fan of the center. I've been following the work for the last couple of years, you know, being back home and, and, you know, watching the releases on social media. But, you know, before we get going, can you tell our listeners your background, you know, and how you got involved in wildlife medicine? Uh, boy, I might take up your whole podcast because it's been a, a long <laughs> okay. and winding road, but it's definitely been an interesting and an exciting one. So uh, I am uh, actually born and raised in Belgium. I'm not originally from San Diego or from California, but uh, and so I uh, went through vet school training in Belgium. Um, I was one of those kids who always knew that he was going to do something with animals, just wasn't quite sure what it was. And then, you know, as I grew up, I, I uh, clearly uh, thought that veterinary medicine or being a veterinarian was would be an exciting or fulfilling uh, role uh, or, or, or thing to do in life. And uh, but I also developed this interest in marine life and largely through the Jacques Cousteau documentaries. You know, we don't have a beautiful Pacific Ocean in Belgium as we do here in, in the U.S. And uh, so became interested in that marine life. But, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do with marine life in Belgium. So uh, I got a useful degree, right, and went to vet school. Uh, but the marine life interest stuck around. And uh, long story short, I ended up, after a few years practicing as a large animal veterinarian, I moved to the South Island of New Zealand to uh, study marine biology. Uh, and uh, completely fell in love with sort of that spectrum of our planet and, and you know, the animal kingdom. 
And then uh, that was my first exposure to working with marine wildlife. Uh, it was more from a biology point of view than a veterinary point of view. And then uh, from there, I came to the U.S., to the University of Florida, who at that time and, and still today has a program dedicated to marine mammal medicine on the, on the vet school at the University of Florida. Did PhD on virus discovery and infectious diseases in uh, marine mammals. And um, uh, then started a, my own research lab, sort of continuing that research and that discipline. I, my research partners, my two main, re- my three, sorry, main research partners in that work were uh, SeaWorld, uh, the Navy's Marine Mammal Program, and then uh, the Marine Mammal Center, which is a rescue and rehab center up the coast from us. So we were spanning this wildlife uh, and animals and human care spectrum, you know, and there's different things you can learn from each group of animals. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I ended up in, in marine mammal medicine, sort of hardcore, became a clinical veterinarian yeah. at the SeaWorld San Diego. And now I am here uh, taking sort of the lead in, in, in uh, all the animal operations, whether it's medicine or uh, science under my wings at the Pacific Marine Mammal Center. That it's, it's, it's amazing. And I know you and I were talking a little bit before we hit record and we were, you know, reminiscing about Florida and some of the people there that we know. Uh, so it's just funny that, you know, we, we've, we've walked a similar path as far as in life. It, really quick, and I know I didn't have this on my list of questions, but your PhD work sounds fascinating. So can you talk about some, in, especially with COVID's on everybody's mind right now. So infectious diseases in marine mammals, how prevalent is it in those populations? Gosh, uh, uh, this topic is a podcast of its own. <laughs> you know, it turns out. So it turns out that the we actually know still today know very very little about infectious diseases in uh, in marine mammals. And um, the the so my PhD topic specifically was actually on a, a virus infection. It's a, a cutaneous, a skin infection, a viral skin infection that that was, was pretty common in sea lions, specifically in rehabilitation centers. And so the, the question really, the, the big looming question was, hey, you know, if, the, if we're, we're trying to do good by bringing these animals into rehab, right? You're relieving pain and suffering and, and addressing animal welfare problems, uh, concerns. And, and, uh, and, and while we're doing it, you know, we're learning from it and we're doing some science. Uh, but, you know, we're, so we're doing this for all the right reasons. But are we inadvertently, as we're doing this, helping spread a disease in these animals, right? That was, that was sort of the big question. It turns out we didn't. It turns out that this is a virus of sea lions and that by the age of one, 90 plus percent of wild sea lions already have antibodies against this thing and whatnot. So uh, uh, that, that was the topic of my PhD, but it did sort of in, inadvertently really open the door to uh, pers- continuing that work after my, my after graduate school, because it turns out that there is very little known back then and still today about infectious diseases in marine mammals and especially viruses. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's still, a, there are still many people who can do PhDs and postdocs and viruses in marine mammals and uncover nothing but new stuff. Right. I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating field, and I know it's an issue in conservation with small populations. Like in the Saiga, they were heavily inbred. And 2014, 2015, there was a die-off of like 200,000. 
have we seen anything like that with any marine mammals mass die-offs like that yeah yeah they actually they they happen and and again because you know so much of these things happen out there in open water and and really the only window uh, you know, I was, I was hinting at the, the science earlier. You know, the, these animals that show up on our beaches, whether dead or alive or, or, or sick or healthy, they are an opportunity for us. They are a window into um, when we do it right, when we do things right. They are a window into what is going on in in, in our oceans. Because uh, a lot of times, things that happen on you know under the waves—not to sound poetic, but literally under the waves—is just goes unnoticed, right? We don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of times what shows up on our beaches is, is the only or, or, or at the very least the earliest indicator that something's happening in our oceans. And it does happen, these die-offs. And in fact, some years ago now, I uh, served on a working group um, that, that had to sort of determine whether something was, whether an event was an unusual mortality event. So uh, the, the way that works is anything that pertains to marine mammals, that strand is under the jurisdiction jurisdiction of uh, NOAA, National Marine Fisheries NOAA. And um, so they have a, uh, a panel of, of experts that consults with them on exactly this topic. You know, if we see an increase in, you know, if we see 37 gray whales die this year, is this unusual? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? And if yes, you know, what uh, should NOAA do to sort of address either figure out the cause and possibly maybe, you know, be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they happen. It's, uh, it's called in marine mammal unusual mortality events. There are uh, several open at any given point in time. They're currently, actually, right now, there's a gray whale, uh, poorly understood, a gray whale UME, unusual mortality event, right mm-hmm. here on the, on, the, on the Pacific coast, from Mex- reaching from, extending from Mexico into Alaska. Yeah, I was going to ask you if it's about the gray whales because I've been reading that in the press. I mean, it's been like forty or fifty have died that we know of, right? That correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And okay. it's been going on for um, um, is it two years now? It's been going on for yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah an increased number yeah. of uh, dead stranded animals that show up on the beaches. That's yeah, it's, it's hard. Ah, the oceans they need our help. So okay, so I back to the list of questions. Sorry, I went off topic, but that's just fascinating field of research. So. When did you become the vice president of conservation medicine and science at the Pacific Marine Mammal Center? Oh, <laughs> What's your role? Good job. Good job. You got it right. <laughs> the uh, only just, uh, well, actually, uh, pretty much exactly three months ago. I am a very oh, wow. okay. uh, new addition to the team. The center has been around for a long time. In fact, the 50th anniversary of the Pacific Marine Mammal Center is, is uh, coming up. And uh, so the center has been around for a long time. The, 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 the team here has been rehabbing and uh, rescuing and rehabbing green mammals for, well, five decades, you know, a few mm-hmm. hundred every year. And uh, so m- my joining the team is, uh, was at the, in spring this year, uh, in um, uh, three months ago now. And I was just, I was really drawn to the, uh, the, the vision and, and, the, and the mission at the center, the uh, the, the current leadership has very uh, is very committed to making the the work that the center does uh, more widespread, more impactful, adding that extra that added level of meaning by you know now contributing the, the, the things we learn from rescuing and rehabbing these animals to science, but it's through, you know through uh, partnerships or, or mm-hmm. uh, research projects we take the lead on. Uh, the center really wants to grow its impact and its meaning and um, and the work it does. And, and uh, 
boy, what an opportunity for me. I feel like I am on the sort of perfectly on the intersect of uh, everything I have done to date, you know, being clinical veterinarian at the SeaWorld Parks, being the rescue veterinarian for SeaWorld San Diego, having done my master's in marine biology, my, you know, research degree in infectious disease. So I, I've sort of landed in a perfect spot and, and there are so many opportunities for growth and development uh, that are that are very unique here at the center. So I'm very excited to be here. No, yeah, it's it's an amazing place. And, you know, we're going to talk about it right now. So really, the role of the center, I guess, I don't know, the three R's, there we go, uh, rescue, rehabilitate, and release. So you kind of talk about that, like, how do you rescue these animals? Or is it, I guess, I guess the first point we should go to is what type of animals are you rescuing? So, um, Pacific Marine Mammal at the Pacific Marine Mammal Center, we are uh, authorized and, and responsible for any marine mammal that strands in the uh, Orange County coast here in uh, California. We are part of the uh, again NOAA-led uh, National Marine Mammal Stranding Network, and basically, what happens at least in the lower 48 state, every section of coastline is assigned to a, a trained and authorized responder, and so we are the responder for uh, Orange County. Our, uh, our bread and butter, you know, the bulk of the patients, at least those that comes in that come in house, are uh, California sea lions, uh, 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 northern elephant seals. Uh, we see year one to two year olds typically, and then uh, harbor seals. Occasionally, we get in, you know, a Guadalupe fur seal. We have a stranded dolphin that are alive, a stranded whale, usually dead. Um, so the, 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 the cases and caseload varies tremendously. It's also a seasonal caseload. Um, uh, so, but yeah, those are the main, the main group of animals that we take care of here. Right. And so how would you go about rescuing, say a sea lion or one of these fur seals? It, it is, um, uh, um, well, it, it's a it's something that is requires some unique knowledge and expertise and experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it is something that you can really only learn on the job. So at the center here, for example, uh, we have a rescue coordinator, and the rescue coordinator coordinates literally exactly that. You know, we usually either the public or uh, some of our partners, such as lifeguards or harbor patrol, harbor patrol, will notify us that an animal is uh, out on the beach, and and you know part of the challenges there is that. Sometimes it is normal for a sea lion to haul out on the beach and come sit on a rock or a beach for a while. So we have to sort of tease out whether what the animal is doing is actually abnormal. Sometimes it's obvious, right, when they're emaciated or injured or wrapped in fishing gear. Uh, sometimes it is not. And so the rescue, the response can go from, okay, we'll go take a look and maybe we will wait this animal out for a few hours because maybe it's just taking a break and it'll go out to swim. Um, if the call is made to go rescue the animal, then... Uh, uh, two or more people will go out with a uh, with with the gear and a truck and so on that can access most of these uh, a lot of times difficult to get to areas. Net the animals uh, safely, uh, put it in a, uh, a transport crate, and then uh, the animal comes to to the center where it receives an intake exam by either myself or other uh, staff veterinarian, Dr. Deming, um, and then uh, go from there. You know the the care. You know, and, and the, the, the supportive care that we provide for the animals probably goes 70 percent or if not more of the way, you know, just providing the fluids, the hydration, the calories, the food uh, that these animals have been missing out there either because they were sick or injured. 
um, and then giving them a you know a safe place to uh, a safe pool to swim in or a safe uh, dry space to haul out on, so that they just have the time they need to to recover. And then uh, on top of that, you know, we provide any veterinary care that you would expect your veterinarian to to provide for your your dog or cat at home. Um, you know, we, if needed, you'll get radiographs, ultrasound. Um, we might get anesthetized for certain procedure. Uh, you know, needed, we perform surgery. Um, we truly are an animal hospital that is specialized in the care for marine mammals. So when you get these animals in, what are some of the injuries you're seeing? Or like you, you mentioned wrapped in nets. Is it, you know, pollute, is it pollution in the oceans? Is it getting hit by boats or, or what's really causing some of this? We see, we see a, a variety of reasons for why these animals strand and they vary a little bit by species. Uh, but in sort of in broad strokes, a lot of the animals we, we get in are animals that have failed to thrive either because, which, you know, to some degree is, is normal in nature, right? We have some animals that, that fail to thrive after they're being weaned. But uh, definitely in recent years, and uh, it's just a few years ago, we had an unusual mortality event where the pups, as they were leaving, you know, the nest from, from the island from, uh, you know, and mom, they were unable to find food because our uh, sea surface temperatures had, had increased and the sardines, which they heavily rely on, uh, were nowhere to be found. It turns out that, you know, the, the, the fishermen and the fisheries finally found them. They had moved uh, further west, so they had moved away from the feeding grounds of these animals. So the, 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 a lot of the animals we take in are just unable to find food for, for some reason. Um, there, uh, there are a number of disease syndromes that we pretty commonly recognize, uh, infectious disease, such as a, a bacterial infection of the kidneys. We, there is actually a, uh, a cancer that's quite common in older California sea lions, which is very interesting because it's a viral induced, uh, cancer. It's a, an area of research for the, one of our areas of research for the center, uh, there's a, a algae, a plankton algae that blooms off the, that has been blooming on and off actually since 1998 when it was first recognized here off the West Coast. And it produces a, a, a toxin, a natural, to- you know, a biological toxin that is mm. causing sea lions to seize, seize and, and actually lose, sort of lose inhibitions and that sort of thing. So that is a cause of stranding. Um, and then increasingly, we, we or, or, or quite a bit, uh, too, too often, uh, we see human interaction, whether mm-hmm. intentional or unintentional. You know, we see animals that have that are wrapped in fishing gear that got their head stuck in a gill net when they were smaller, and then they sort of grow into the injury, into that gear until it constricts their blood supply and and uh, and, and so on. Um, and even intentional um, uh, human interaction, harmful human interaction. Animals get shot. Uh, in fact, it it is so common that uh, typically an animal on the intake exam will get radiographs. It will get radiographed to see if it has uh, BB gun pellets or actually uh, bullet shrapnel in the skull mm-hmm. or the neck or the chest somewhere. Yeah, fishermen, right? Like, you know, off the coast. Yeah, I, I, I don't know who uh, I don't know who does it, but yeah, okay. it, you know, it clearly <laughs> happens out on in the yeah. open water, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, my family is all fishermen, so they can come after me if they they want. Old tuna fishermen out of uh, San Pedro there in L.A. Um, Are you seeing, I guess this question is, because this month's Plastic Free July. We know the oceans are polluted. I know from the Pacific Mammal Center, Pacific Marine Mammal Center, (laughs) 
you have had to euthanize some seals in the past. Are they ingesting a lot more plastic or is that just kind of a myth? Oh, no, no. Plastic is a, is a problem for our, um, for our marine life. You know, we've known that for a while. In fact, you know, in California, when just a few years ago, when, uh, you know, the, the, the plastic ban, the plastic bag ban was implemented. And, and uh, so that, that was by and large to protect marine life, plastic bags, uh, balloons. Um, one of the biologists that was on the East Coast, but it, it'll be true here too, could, the, the, who does aerial surveys for uh, whales and dolphins off the East Coast was telling us that they, uh, they were considering actually writing a paper on uh, uh, reporting plastic abundance and how they could they see these spikes after the Fourth of July, after big holidays of people, you know, let up balloons and they float out into the ocean. And then, unfortunately, some of the animals will mistake uh, that those those plastic items for food. Uh, perhaps more so, uh, or at least in my personal experience, uh, more so sea turtles than uh, marine mammals so much because uh, what we think happens is that these plastic bags get mistaken by animals for squid. And so uh, a lot of the marine mammals we respond to are not squid eaters. They eat, uh, they, they prefer fish, uh, but sea turtles heavily rely on squid. And so sea turtles are prone to ingesting bag and uh, plastic bags. And in fact, I, I, uh, when I was, when I was uh, earlier in my career, when I was at SeaWorld, we had a sea turtle come in that had, well, more than one that had uh, large amounts of plastics in their stomach. In recent years, uh, or in, in recent year, maybe two years, well, it's more than a couple of years now, people have started recognizing that the, actually the plastic that we can't see, the, the breakdown of the yeah, plastic, the plastic fibers are also building up in the, in the oceans and in the, uh, and, and, and in the animals, right? So this dispersion of the plastic is not the, not the solution here because uh, even when it's in small invisible and, and small particles that aren't visible to the naked eye, it still poses a problem and actually builds up in the food chain. Yeah, yeah, we, and we ingest it. It's that's the thing. It does affect us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So when you get them in, I guess you know, talk about rehabilitation. How long are they with you? I guess I know. It's, I know it's going to depend on the injuries or what what happened to them. But on, typically, when you bring in a a young sea lion, how does that process work? Like, how long do they rehab them for generally, and then how long are they with you? Yeah, the process, as you were getting at, the process is entirely driven by the individual animal. You know, there's no sort of uh, set template or, or boilerplate for how to rehab any given sea lion. Now, that said, a typical rehab, uh, an animal will spend three to four months in the hospital. Um, and uh, there's a progression, you know, initially when the animals come in, typically the animals we respond to are laying on the beach or hauled out on the beach because they're too weak to swim. And uh, they, they don't want to be in the water because, you know, they feel they might drown. And uh, so that's why they come haul out on the beaches. It's, you know, even though the humans are typically quite aversive to them, you know, it's sort of the only choice they have. So when they first come into the hospital, they, uh, they are kept dry and they are just provided fluids, 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 supportive care, uh, some very basic calories and just to turn their, to start to turn their, their uh, physiology and their bodies around, right? So from this negative balance into either hopefully a positive balance. And then uh, pretty quickly there, they go through a set of diagnostics, which includes a blood draw, a radiograph, uh, you name it, you know, whatever is, is sort of tailored to the individual and, and the species. And we, uh, so we try to narrow down the diagnosis, you know, is it infectious disease? Is it just malnourishment? Uh, does this animal have cancer? Uh, so it goes through a diagnostic veterinary workup. 
Um, then a few weeks of treatment with checkpoints along the way. You know, after two weeks of treatment, you'll minimally at two weeks of treatment, you'll get a veterinary exam, uh, usually under anesthesia. And then, uh, and then at some point in the rehab, the, the animals stabilize. They become mm -hmm. uh, less critical. Uh, and at that point, they can go out into a pool with the other animals where they you know, now have to compete a little bit again, a little bit more like out in the wild, like out in nature. And uh, so then at that point, they basically enter the phase where they, uh, we let them gain weight uh, so that they have all the reserves they need uh, for when we eventually release them. And, you know, let's say it takes them some time to find a food source again or to figure out how to catch fish for themselves. They have one, two, three weeks of um, buffer in case they don't uh, get to eat right away. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's amazing work that you guys are doing there. Um, you know, applaud you. Now, I've seen videos, but if you could talk to our listeners, how do you release them? I mean, how do you organize that? That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Oh, it's a, it's a, the releases are uh, are a ton of fun, and the releases are uh, a, a one of the better parts of of doing this work. You know, let's see, it's a lot of hard work. Like we we're getting early. Let's say you know you've worked on an animal for four months, and this is not the only animal you're working on, right? You you we typically process or take in I don't know, anywhere between two hundred to two hundred and fifty animals a year. So the hospital gets quite busy, especially in spring. Uh, and then to be able to, and, and also not all animals make it, you know, I, I would estimate that approximately 20% of the animals are just beyond repair and uh, they either pass away or um, they, uh, they are euthanized because they're, you know, their prognosis is just too grave. Uh, but so then to be able to take these animals out to release is, is a, uh, is a really neat experience. You, you, the releases are either done on the beach, uh, like, for example, harbor seals would be very appropriate. Uh, we tend to do it early, uh, sort of more private beaches, uh, because the last thing we want to do is to habituate these animals to humans. Mm -hmm. Even though we are trying to do good for them, we don't want them to think that we are good. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> because we want them to stay away. Uh, you know, we don't want any of these sea lions to think that, oh, you know, there's Hendrik. Now I'm getting fish. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, that yeah, is yeah. A, uh, this is that 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 would be that would uh, defeat the purpose because then those animals become nuisance animals. They develop bad habits. They will steal go steal a fish. Then uh, from somebody, then somebody gets angry. They get they, they ingest a fish hook. You know, it gets them into trouble. And uh, and so, but these releases releases are done on remote beaches typically in the early morning or boat releases. Um, you know, when we get a chance, we will uh, load some animals onto a boat and take them offshore and do open water releases in a kelp bed or, or areas that we know where either there are other animals or there's ample fish for uh, foraging. Right. And, and they're able to go right back to being a seal in the wild, right? After even being around humans for so many months and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it, it it is sometimes interesting to see their first reaction. You know, when mm -hmm. you open the, the 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 stern or you open the kennel, and you know, the first thing to do is they stick their head under water. And it occasionally happens that one of them will just sit up and turn around because you know they've been in a land-based pool for a while, right? They've been in a hospital pool, the equivalent of a hospital bed, and mm -hmm. suddenly they see this big pool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Can't yeah. see the bottom. Uh, it's a little scary. Um, and, uh, so some, sometimes there's a little bit of hesitation, but, you know, as soon as they actually get in the water, they, they are gone. You know, we also try to, yeah. when we can, we try to release them in groups, 
So there's a, they can take off in pods of three, four, five, uh, yeah. and that helps. You know, they can they they are they're part of a team and they uh, are usually uh, usually you can't see them for very long because once they're they're back, they're gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, okay, I'm free. I'm free out of jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen the I've seen a couple of videos on social media with the mass releases and my partner Pippa, she's uh, she visited you guys before COVID and all this stuff and uh, was a member. If we were going to go to a release, but then COVID hits, <laughs> how have you guys been doing during this crisis? Uh, well, like uh, everybody else, we've had to adjust, right? It's uh, clearly COVID has impacted us, uh, just like it has impacted everybody. The animal operations uh, were deemed essential, so we have uh, throughout this, so continuing uh, since March, we we have responded to animals and continue to treat animals as we otherwise would have. Uh, so the animal rescue and rehab operation is um, is intact, I guess you can call it. Uh, what has changed is that we're trying to do it with less staff. You know, we, we have a, we're a volunteer-run operation, and we have people who graciously dedicate half a day a week to come help us take care of these animals every week. And so uh, we've tried to minimize the number of people we have in the hospital, obviously, to sort of thin out the crowd and and you yeah. know reduce the risk of transmission. And then we follow uh, the the any recommendations from the CDC. And then also the NOAA guidelines, because sometimes it gets tricky. You know, sometimes you have to work close to each other. Uh, you know, when you're tube feeding a sea lion, you know, somebody's restraining the animal and, and mm-hmm. somebody's feeding the animal. So you're, you're in close proximity to each other. So we have all sorts of protective gear, personal protective equipment in, in place, uh, goggles, face shields, uh, you name it. Yeah. And then uh, the, the part of the center that had, has had to uh, adjust the most uh, that really has had to pivot is the education component. So our center, our hospital, even though it's relatively small, it actually takes uh, typically uh, uh, we have, a, we have, we host about 50,000 visitors who come yeah. see our operation and, and some of these animals, you know, the, the more healthy ones, the more pre-release animals and, and learn about these animals and learn about rescue and rehab, learn about what's going on in their oceans. And so obviously that has been closed down since March. Um, and um, the, but the center also has a, a very elaborate set of education programs t- for different age groups, you know, from seven-year-olds to, to teenagers. And um, those programs are typically in person. And so our education department has done an amazing job. Within a few weeks, they pivoted to uh, going up to online uh, and actually a lot of free online programs and classes and seminars and they have been tremendously popular and very well received by the parents. Uh, uh, and, and so, yeah, we're, we're very proud of that because, yes, part of our mission is rescue, rehab, and release, but it's also education, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. telling, um, you know, if, uh, if, you, you help, if you save one of these animals, it's great. But if you save all these animals and you can now tell the world why you had to save it, uh, well, you've accomplished something a whole lot bigger, right? Yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, I... The last time I drove by is in February, and I remember specifically going, oh, I'm going to go when I get back in March, because I had a trip planned, and then we went straight into lockdown. It's <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Uh, so whenever we all get back opened up, I'll, I'll definitely come visit. Yeah, you, yeah, by all means, everybody's welcome to visit. We're open seven yeah, days a week, yeah. free, yeah. no admission. Come see what it's, we do. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing place. So... 
with your research, is there any projects you have ongoing now? Well, uh, I will hedge my statement that, you know, I, I only started at the center three months ago. That's uh, true. But, That's true. <laughs> yes. But there are a lot of things that we are already yeah. building. And so, yeah. um, so my role at the center is to oversee the animal operations, which is rescue and rehab. It is res- and, and, and uh, response to entangled whales off our coast, off our California coast, and attempt to disentanglement. Now, those two programs, uh, those folks don't need Hendrick. <laughs> They're doing a great job. They've been doing it for a great time. I'm here to help, and I will help, and I will, I will hopefully be useful. But uh, really, the, 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 the bulk of my time is spent on uh taking what we do and taking what we learn and actually make it available sort of in the format of science to the 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 conservation and the conservation management community and so um to to go about this because i mean like the ocean is a big place and it, it has many challenges and to sort of help figure out what our most impactful role or pieces are in this um we put together a, a first thing we did was to put together a scientific advisory committee so because I don't always trust my own opinion. <laughs> mm, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'd like to have it validated. So we brought in five uh, really well-respected uh, folks in the field. Uh, one of them is on the, uh, Dr. Francis Gaunt is on the Marine Mammal Commission. Uh, we have folks from the federal NOAA office. We have population biologists on there. It's a, a diverse group, but very um, uh, trustworthy, people's opinion, who I personally mm-hmm. trust. And so what we did is together we identified a five sort of buckets, if you wish, of science tasks uh, that, that, uh, that are priority interests for the center going forward. Um, the first one is rescue and rehab of pinnipeds and anything that pertain, pertains to it, right? You know, it's our bread and butter. The, 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 those anim- and those animals actually come to us, you know. Mm-hmm. Even if I tried to stay away from doing a science project about the rescue, rescue and rehab of pinnipeds, I couldn't. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 they're, yeah. they're coming to us. Um, so, but anything that supports either the medicine, the management, uh, the post op, mo- the, the post release monitoring, you name it, uh, stranding network needs, you know, that fo- sort of falls in that program. The second program is actually uh, small cetacean health. So, dolphin or dolphin like animals here in Southern California. We live in a busy place. There's a lot of harbors, a lot of marinas, a lot of people come to the beaches, a lot of people live close to our beaches. And we actually have a very diverse uh, uh, marine life uh, ecosystem down here in Southern California. Bite it. It's own little pocket in the ocean with its own uh, unique uh, set of animals. So the Southern California Bite is really sort of on that intersection of being ecologically diverse and economically valuable. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we we are we have some projects in the in the shoot that um, will f- look at doing some of that health monitoring of dolphins in Southern California, and then uh, a third one is sea lion cancer. Actually, my colleague Dr. Deming did her PhD work on uh, this viral induced cancer in California sea lions. It has implications for human health. So there's a one health interest. The, um, the fourth category of projects uh, are uh, the fourth and fifth build on my experience with uh, large whale medicine or whale medicine from my years at SeaWorld. And, and uh, so the, the fourth one is uh, seeing if we can provide veterinary care in addition to disentanglement for these entangled whales. 
getting the gear off these animals is already a, a, an amazing accomplishment. It's a tremendous accomplishment. But any other animal that has an injury of that extent would go see a veterinarian. And uh, we are looking into ways to make that possible for these free swimming whales as well. And then the fifth one is uh, also whales, but more specifically developing techno technologies and methods for assessing the health of free swimming killer whales. And that project, that program, or those projects are specifically focused on southern resident killer whales, which is an endangered population um, off the coast of Seattle, British Columbia, so Washington State. So yeah, those are the five. Uh, long answer, but there's a lot of work to be done. No, those are no. the, those are the five programs that we are uh, in the process of launching. That's amazing, amazing work. What species of whale? Because you, like you're talking about California, is so unique. Isn't it almost like a whale highway? as they're migrating up and down the coast? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, you know, uh, uh, people don't, a lot of people don't realize this, but the world's largest annual migration is happening right off our beach. Uh, gray whales uh, swim every year from Baja in Mexico all the way up to Alaska. And it, it truly is the largest uh, animal migration, uh, annual animal migration on our planet. Uh, so in addition to the gray whales, we then, uh, in summer, we get the blue whales down here. And blue whales, not too long ago, I, I, I don't want to put a number on the years, but it's, yeah. I think, uh, 20 years ago, we didn't see blue whales off our coast here. Uh, uh, two or three summers ago, and one day I was out on the water, we saw over 40 animals. So blue oh. whales have been uh, coming back to this area, possibly because their population numbers have been uh, in, in improving. And blue whales, are they, the Pacific blue whale is the largest animal that ever lived, larger yeah. than any yeah. dinosaur that ever existed. Yep, yep, those yep, are, yep. Those are those are crazy things to think about. You know, and it's right here. It's right off our beaches. What an what opportunity for all of us, not just us at the Pacific Rimano Center, but all of us living here to, to, to make sure that these animals' homes are safe. They're very special animals. And then, you know, and then there's a myriad of other species. You get humpback whales, which are known for their aerial displays. You know, their leaps they're, and, and their singing. And then we get fin whales and more shy animals so yeah it's a, there's a huge diversity of large cetaceans so large whales and far uh, off our coast here now have you had a uh sighting of blue whales off california because i'm dying to see them yeah 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 just a few years ago actually my uh, wife and i went on a whale watch boat and we saw over 40 in one day Oh my goodness, that's insane! Um, so, so you know, it's jealous. not like that every day, right? We probably lucked no. out. No, the uh, <laughs> no the in, in uh, the whale watching here of uh, in, in Southern California is some of the best in the world. And I actually mm -hmm. have to say, I feel like our whale watch operators are very respectful around the animals. So, mm -hmm. um, you, know, you know, there's there's ways to behave to be courteous about uh, you know when you drive a boat around the whale, and and uh, whale watch operators are educated on, on how to do it appropriately and, and politely, so to speak, or even legally, if you want to go that route, yeah, yeah, when you yeah, stick yeah. our carrot. But, um, <laughs> but not everybody around the world respects those regulations all the time. And I have actually found that our Southern California Real Watch operators are, 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 are really good and really courteous. And uh, yeah, I would encourage people to go out there to, to try to go see one of those animals, because when you do, you'll, you'll, um, you, you won't forget it. And, and, and yeah. in the end, uh, how does the saying go? We only conserve what we know, right? Yeah. So the more true. people get to know these animals, the better for them, as long as it's done in a, in a appropriate manner, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's funny. Again, you were down in New Zealand. One of my first interviews was with uh, Dr. Kim Getz, 
blue whale researcher there out of Wellington. So uh, I know uh, New Zealand has a healthy population of blue whales down there too. So, you know, one of the things, if you can kind of let our listeners know, we talked a little bit about plastic and some of these other pressures, but from your experience and especially veterinarian's experience, how, how is our ocean wildlife doing out there? And what are some of the pressures that they're, that they're faced with besides, I guess, pollution is a big one, right? Yeah, gosh, I mean, that's a um, tough question. <laughs> it is a tough question because it has, you know, there are so many species out there and, and uh, they each have their own needs and they, their own uh, pressures uh, in general, you know, us humans, we, we tend to not be very respectful when we enter an animal's home. Right, whether that's on land, and so that's true on land, and it, it is true in the water. And um, you know, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be out there and enjoy, or or you know, even derive the economic benefits by any means, right? But uh, I, I think we should always try to do it in the in the in the way that minimizes the impact and is the most respectful to the animals that already live there. And uh, there, there are, uh, there's no doubt that our oceans are are under pressure, whether it's through changes in water quality, whether it's through, uh, you, you know, whether you call it natural or not, but warming mm-hmm. of, our, of our oceans, uh, you know, even the slightest change in ocean condition affects the entire food chain because that's what it mm-hmm. is. You know, it's one little, one little soup of, you know, it's a big pot of soup of animals and they're all, they all feed off of each other. And so these very basic levels, you know, the phytoplankton, the little plant plankton uh, mm-hmm. that, that grows in the ocean, is entirely driven by ocean conditions, you know, sunlight, water, temperature, nutrients. Um, and then uh, if if they do well, then everybody, you know, gets to feed off of each other. If those, if those ocean conditions change, uh, everything shifts. And, uh, and, and right now we are definitely seeing a lot of shifts, you know, unusual mortality events. We've had blobs, we, you know, we had the the warm water blob in, in, in you know, of the, in the North Pacific, we've had El Nino's. We're having these algal blooms. There's a lot happening out there, and there's um, there's a uh, too much happening out there to uh-huh. feel like things are uh, going well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, climate change, acidification, bleaching of. The coral reefs. I mean, there's just so many pressures out there. Fisheries collapse. You know, we think of that as a human problem. You know, well, we'll run out of seafood and now we have to farm it. But you know what? There's a whole other group of animals that also relies yeah. on that same fishery. Yeah. And, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is the African penguin. When I mean, you were mentioning the, uh, that year you had all those really skinny uh, sea lions come in because the sardines moved off the coast. I think it's with the African penguin, the ocean currents changed. Now their so- source of food's like 75 kilometers off the coast when it was normally 20 to 30, right? So, yeah. Uh, anyways. And especially those animals that sort of live on the extremes of our planet are are the first to be impacted, right? You know, walrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course, everybody yeah. hears yeah. about polar bear all, all the time because they're so charismatic. Mm-hmm. But any of these animals that live on literally on the edge of the ice, uh, their their lifestyles and potentially their survival uh, mm-hmm. or, or existence as a species is is uh, impacted by this. You know, nature is nature is beautiful, but it's not very kind. It's not very gentle. So uh, 
you know, if something shifts, it shifts, and it doesn't matter what the consequences are to the animals that live there, right? Now, have you heard anything about the vaquita porpoise? Any news coming out of the Gulf of California? Um, I, I so uh, so I, I don't recall. I don't recall exactly what year the response was, but I was uh, I was part of the team that actually went down to San Felipe when the Mexican government um, asked, invited an international team of experts to try to come collect the last, what was mm-hmm. a fewer than 30 vaquita and bring them into a, uh, a safe enclosure, a pen off the coast uh, in, in Baja, specifically in San Felipe. And, and so the, whole, the goal of the program was just to just get them out of harm's way, uh, hopefully uh, figure out based on what was known from animals in zoos and, and you know how can we successfully get these animals to, to breed among themselves in, in, in the mm-hmm. pen. And then, uh, so expand the population a little bit. In the meantime, solve what the threats are, which is really ghost nets and mm-hmm. um, and Totoaba fishery. And then, um, uh, once once the, all these threats have been removed, then you know we'll, they'll all be uh, reintroduced. So um, that project failed. It turns out that this, these animals may not have been very. Uh, they're, they're probably a little too flighty for such a hands-on approach. It was an unusual approach. I mean, kudos to. Mexican government for willing to take it on, um, but uh, the project didn't succeed. But and then uh, so the, the shift of the vaquita efforts have entirely gone back to uh, managing the the illegal uh, totoaba fishery. The totoaba is a fish that itself is endangered, uh, but mm-hmm. its swim bladder is just it's literally worth its weight in in gold. Uh, you know, dollar mm-hmm. per pound is the same rate as as gold, from what I understand, mm-hmm. and um, in the in the Asian market. And then uh, ghost nets, you know, nets that have been abandoned. And so all the efforts have gone back to uh, solving those two challenges. And, um, uh, you know, not a lot of news come out of it, probably because there's not a lot of animals left, correct? The estimate was somewhere between 12 and 30, from what I recall. I do recall that there was a uh, a sighting of a calf just one or two years ago, uh, which would be tremendous. Uh, it's great news, you know. It's like a little spark yeah. or a glimmer of hope. But of course, you need more than one calf per year for population recovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the world's most endangered animals. You know, that's mm-hmm. just yeah. uh, it's a tragic story. It's a tragic story. Well, just a couple more questions because I know you've got some patients <laughs> that need to be fed. Probably. <laughs> yeah, this one I, I always like to ask. And this harkens back to my UF days. When I was uh, sitting in a, in a room with a bunch of scientists and we got in this philosophical debate of whether we have a moral obligation to save endangered species or not. From your perspective, out there fighting the fight, do we as a species have a moral obligation to save, spend the money and save these animals? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I, I think so. I, you know, I also understand, you know, I, I actually do understand something, sometimes the arguments, for example, with Southern resident Kilauea, there are people who argue, well, you know, there, there are 50,000 estimated 50,000 kilowales worldwide, you know, around our planet. Uh, why invest so much in this one niche population of 73 animals? You know, I, mm-hmm. th- there is something, you know, there's some foundation to that reasoning. I don't buy into it. Uh, so I, I think so, but I, I th- honestly, I think there's a a rather than sort of trying to answer it from a philosophical per- perspective. My take on it is is that if you if we uh, can 
introduce more people to these animals, if if we can get more, if we can people, if we can get people, the general public or the majority of the majority of them, to get to know these animals in the way that I do, or the way that you do, or or at least some of us do, who, who have an interest in, in marine life, I don't think it'll be a question anymore. It'll become it'll become so obvious that. Uh, you know, once you start to know these animals, once you start to appreciate marine life, once you actually get out there and s- swim in, and see the coral and see the, you know, everything that, that is uh, th- this whole underwater world, I don't think it'll be a philosophical question. I don't think, I think it'll be obvious to everybody that it is worth protecting and that we should protect it. And then we can sort of skip the philosophy <laughs> and, uh, and just get as many people hooked, uh, like, like you and I got hooked. Um, yeah. And so that, that's sort of my more practical approach to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. trying to answer the philosophical question. It's a deep one. It's a deep one. And it's not an easy one. And I ask that from almost all my guests. And it's interesting to, to get all the different perspectives. All right. Last question. How can we help you in the Pacific Marine Mammal Center? Um, well, it, it, it is the... Um, Generally, you can help uh, uh, you can help me and what I do, and help the Pacific Marine Mammal Center and what the center is uh, is doing or what we're trying to do uh, uh, by sort of big picture. It's by taking care of our planet, which starts with you know the things we do as individuals and our habits and and uh, you name it. Right? That that's that's boy, it's a, it feels like a little drop in, you know, in a big ocean, <laughs> no pun intended, but it really goes a long way. You know, you, you the, the actions you do, you lead by example, uh, your children pick up on it, your neighbors pick up on it, um, eventually politicians pick up on it, and so it, it can uh, drive change. More specifically, you know, anybody who's interested in uh, any of the uh, activities or programs uh, that uh, either myself or the other folks at uh, Pacific Marine Mammal Center have going. Uh, and if you want to learn more about one of these topics or if you want to see what, what it is you can do, uh, maybe going as far as volunteering, uh, go to our website, you know, look up Pacific Marine Mammal Center um, or PacificMMC.org if you have a pen, hand, a pen handy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you'll find a lot of information and, and uh, a way to contact us uh, right there if you you know if that's that's the, the, the interest but generally you know it's um, be very be mindful of our actions and uh, sort of try to look at it from what the impact is for the animals marine or terrestrial you know or planet as a whole yeah no uh, and i will definitely put those links uh in the show notes but uh, Dr. Hendrik Nolans, Vice President of Conservation Medicine and Science from the Pacific Marine Mammal Center, right near my hometown. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, uh, and, and your, your guests, your podcast listeners. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.